We're going to be looking in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 tonight, if you'd like to turn there, a message I call Forever Mine. You know, several weeks ago, we began looking at a series of messages that was suggested by the words of the ancient hymn, the old hymn, Amazing Grace, 250 years old now. And uh, a song can't be around that long unless it presents some very solid theological truth. Uh, there's a lot of songs that are out there that are being written even today that do the same exact thing. Many of them, I'm afraid, we sing without thinking sometimes. And, and by we, I'm talking about Christians in general, not necessarily here. Brother Bill does an excellent job at uh, his song selection and pulling those songs out. And, and our songs are solid and biblically sound. And if something's out of kilter, then we don't sing it here. But that doesn't mean you don't hear it on Caleb or some of the other songs or places. A lot of songs out there aren't theologically sound these days. Uh, but uh, it's been amazing looking through these various verses and just considering biblical truth uh, that was presented. And tonight we're going to do that out of Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 and the expression forever mine. Let's stand together as we reverence the reading of God's word. In our text, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And may God bless the reading of his word tonight. It's my prayer. You may be seated. Our message tonight is suggested by the last stanza that was actually written by John Newton. Uh, the last verse of Amazing Grace, as we usually sing it today, was not written by him, and we in fact don't know who wrote it. Now, we're still going to talk about when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, uh, but you need to understand that that's not the last verse that John Newton wrote. Instead, his last verse was actually left out of most of the modern hymnal versions. And when Chris Tomlin included it in his version of Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone, I actually thought he wrote it until I looked it up and found out that what he had done is actually reclaimed the last stanza that John Newton wrote. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. And that verse then brought to mind the text passage for tonight from Simon Peter. Simon Peter was an old man when he wrote the second epistle that bears his name. He was looking back at an extraordinary life. Um... How would you like to be an old Simon Peter looking back at the life you lived? He could have spent his life throwing a fishing net, pulling it in. That could have been all he had ever done. But oh, what a change was made in Simon Peter's life when he said, You follow me and I'll make you to become fishers of men. And he responded to that call. And he went with Jesus. And oh, what a difference it made in his life. At this point in his life, Simon Peter simply refers to himself as the elder. 
What an extraordinary time of miracles and deliverance, of leadership, of people saved and baptized, lives changed. Yes, suffering. Yes, hardship. Yes, martyrdom. He knew that was coming too because Jesus told him. And he knew it was time, getting close to time, for him to lay down this tabernacle as the Lord Jesus told him. And now here he is as the elder, once more to be the mouthpiece, the spokesman for the revelation of the Word of God through the Spirit. And he's writing to us then about the return of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote a lot about it. Peter writes about it. John writes a lot about it. The three most prominent writers in the New Testament, Peter, Paul, and John, all wrote a lot about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And here, Simon Peter is warning us, if you take the time to read it as you get home tonight, you'll, you'll see that he was taking the time to warn us that as time went on, more and more people would begin to mock the second coming of Jesus Christ and reject its validities. They were scoffers, as he called them, walking after their own lusts, their own desires, living life their own way. And they didn't want to be bothered by the idea that Jesus Christ was going to return and set up a kingdom on this earth and judge the world in righteousness. All those things were things that they mocked at, scoffed at. Of course, we would expect the Jews to do that. But as time went on, more and more people would be acquainted with the message of Christ. And a fundamental, essential part of the message of Jesus Christ to this world has always been, I'm coming back. <laughs> I'm coming back. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is coming again, then you don't believe in the Jesus Christ of Scripture. He's one that you're thinking maybe about, but he's not the one that is presented to us in the Word of God. Because the Jesus Christ of Scripture was very plain. If I go to prepare a place for you, he said, I will come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. The return then of Jesus Christ was predicted by his own words. And he will fulfill that prediction just like he fulfilled the one that said, when I'll, I'll lay my life down and after three days, I'll bring it up again. I'll give you the sign of the prophet Jonah, only in a much greater way. He predicted his death, his burial and resurrection and his return. Simon Peter then, thinking about the scoffers and how many would turn away from it. He calls on us then tonight with this thoughtful question uh, right out of John Newton's playbook in a way. Or John Newton's was right out of Simon Peter's. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? What kind of life should we live? What kind of people should we be? Considering the fact that all these things will be dissolved. As Newton put it, since the earth shall soon dissolve like snow. 
What kind of people should we be? Well, this is answered for us in several ways in our text tonight. And the first one is, Simon Peter tells us that we are looking for people. <laughs> I chose that because looking for is mentioned three times in these verses. Uh, verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise... Look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. Looking for. We're a looking for kind of people. Now, this doesn't mean that we're looking for something that's lost. Although I have to tell you tonight that I spend an inordinate amount of time looking for things that are lost. Uh, one of my... Uh, resolutions for the coming year was to make sure that I put my keys and billfold in the drawer when I walk in the house every single time. That doesn't seem like much to y'all, but imagine what it was like having 14 grandkids in my house. Everything I laid down disappeared. And uh, sometimes it was my fault. Most of the time it was my fault. Good gracious, I, I left my glasses so many different places I couldn't even begin to think for it. And maybe you're that kind of looking for person too. Maybe you're not. Um, but that's really not what's in the text. The looking for in our text is not for something that's lost, but something that is anticipated. We are looking for. And the first thing he mentions is the day of God. We are looking for the day of God, which speaks of the time of unprecedented judgment on this planet. Twice, in verse 10 and verse 12, Simon Peter describes this as a time when the elements will melt. Twice he says that. Interestingly, Simon Peter used a word that describes fever heat. Internally produced heat. A lot of different words he could have used in Greek for heat. It was interesting that he chose to use the word fever heat. Heat that's generated from the inside out. Now we know a whole lot more about the heat that is produced when the elements melt. Than Simon Peter might have known. But we don't know more than God the creator knows. And the Holy Spirit then was perfectly capable of inspiring Peter to use this word and did. The elements will melt with fever heat. He'll describe how that it'll happen with a, a huge noise. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what will happen when the elements melt? Now, we may think that we've discovered all of the mysteries of the atomic nature of the universe, but we have not. Science is still struggling to try to understand how all of those things work. I was watching a, a documentary this last week because it was prompted kind of by this message. I got to looking at it, got to thinking about it, and somehow I stumbled on a, a documentary uh, of those days back in, in the 40s when they were doing their scientific research. And uh, there was some speculation about when they started the first atomic bomb, if they'd ever be able to stop it. Uh, there was some who 
were speculating that it might just continue to go on and on and on and split every atom in all the world. Uh, that theory was obviously dismissed, but I just found it interesting. When they set that thing off, they really didn't know all that was going to happen. Of course, it's ancient history for us today. We may think we've outgrown all of that. We haven't. You might think the atomic threat is gone. <laughs> it's not. But it's not the atomic threat that's posed by North Korea, although that's real. It's not the atomic threat that's po posed by Iran, although that's real. It's not the atomic threat that's posted by the Soviet Union, although that one is real. The atomic threat that I'm looking for is the one that's right here in 2 Peter chapter 3. <laughs> because let me tell you something, brothers and sisters in Christ. God said this one is going to happen, and it will happen. God is the one who created the atomic nature of this universe, and one day God is going to make it all dissolve. The elements will melt with fever heat. And of course, that's not all that's going to happen. And a lot of things are going to happen building up for that, and a lot of things are going to happen before that occurs you say brother Richard do you think the day is going to end or the, the day of God is going to come tomorrow and the world is going to end maybe next week no no I in fact I think we're at least a thousand and seven years away from that time because the tribulation hadn't started and there's a millennial reign of Christ that comes after that so we're at least a thousand and seven years if Jesus gave the rapture happened tomorrow it'd still be a thousand seven years according to what the Bible tells us at least that much. But I do know that this world is headed for a date with divine destiny. And it will not escape. When we start talking about the world coming to an end, you know, everybody's got their theories. Well, will it be an asteroid? We hear more and more about that one. Well, just by the way, Revelation chapter 8 and 8 says that a burning mountain is going to fall and and hit the earth and land in the sea. Revelation 8. So I would say, is an asteroid in our future? Probably so. <laughs> Revelation 8. I don't know what you'd call a burning mountain falling from the sky if you didn't call it an asteroid. I don't know what it would be if not that. Is it going to be a plague? Is it going to be a, a horrible plague? Well, Revelation 4 and 8 speaks of a pestilence, a time when a quarter of the world's population is going to die. So I'd say, yep, that's going to be part of it. What about an alien invasion? Is that going to get us? Well, I'll encourage you to read Revelation 9 for yourself and see what comes flying up out of the bottomless pit when God opens the gate. Winged creatures with armor like a horse armed for battle with the face of a man on it and crown on their heads. You say, what are they? As far as I know, they're demons. But I'll tell you one thing. They are not of this world. That's part of it, too. So we look for the day of the Lord. Yes, that's one of the things we're looking for. 
And that time of unprecedented judgment of which Simon Peter just gives us a glimpse, but we see so much more written about it all over the Word of God. But not only do we look for the day of the Lord, but we also look for a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. I wish I had more information to give you tonight about this new heaven and new earth, a new creation populated by holy people, created a new in the image of God, a world with no sin and no devil and no time. Mm. I have no idea what it's going to be. I've got a feeling God's going to keep us busy, much as he did Adam and Eve when they were in the garden and they had to tend it. I'm not sure what all we'll do. I can tell you it'll be righteous. I can tell you it'll be glorious. And I can tell you, It will be eternal. I can tell you that it won't be violent. I can tell you that it will be peace. I can tell you that it will be forever fellowship with God and his people. Beyond that, the Bible doesn't tell us much. Whatever it is, you know, Paul told us that the first man was made of the earth. And he was earthy. I always like that word, earthy. It makes me want to kind of growl when I say it, earthy. He was earth, made of the earth, and he was earthy, earthy. What does that mean? Well, it meant that he was made suitable for this earth and what it is. He was made for life here, and that's the body that we have. That's the life that we have. Our our body is, is amazingly tuned to this environment and the environment of this planet. We are amazingly equipped for life here on this earth. Do I think it all happened by accident? Absolutely not. We are designed by our heavenly creator. We were made for the earth and we were made earthy. But you know, Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, that as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. One day we'll have a new body that's made for a new heaven and a new earth. What that means is, is that just as this earth was created for us and we were created for it, I believe that God is going to create the next one and he'll make it for us and he'll make us for it. And how it'll all work out, I don't know. But I know it'll be righteous because God tells us. We're looking for people then. We are looking for Uh, This day of judgment, a time of tribulation, yes, a time when the world as we know it will be dissolved, will melt like snow. The second thing then, not only are we looking for people, but we are a diligent people. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. We're not to be overwhelmed By the anticipation of the return of Christ. Nor are we to be filled with fear and dread. Paul told us clearly that God has not appointed us to wrath. But to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Thessalonians 5 and 9. Let me tell you something brothers and sisters in Christ. That's good news. God has not appointed us to wrath. And and, and just to make sure that we got it. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 he said that he has delivered us from the wrath to come. So God doesn't intend for us to live our life in fear and dread. But he tells us instead to be diligent. That means to make haste, to work with effort and exertion. 
I, I watched some fellows working the other day. Um, and I, I just had a moment. I was sitting there watching. And that, let's just say they weren't being diligent. They weren't being very diligent. Okay? They weren't working with exertion. They weren't working with toil or with effort. It, it seemed like they were working in a way to, to make the job last as long as possible. You ever seen that? Uh, this, uh, yeah, you've seen it. I won't belabor the point. Sometimes we work with effort and exertion because we know the time is short. We've got something to do and we've got to get it done. We work hard. We work long hours. We do whatever it takes. We say, well, it's hard. Yes, it is. The diligence then that God describes here is that kind of effort, the kind of effort and exertion that we put forth when we have to get something done. And what it is that God wants us to get done is to be found by Him in peace without spot and blameless. It takes effort, a lot of it, to maintain our sense of peace in a world that's going as crazy as ours is. It takes effort for us to pull ourselves away from all the bad news and all the controversy and all the conflict. It takes effort. I have to do it. You have to do it. It takes effort to just pull away and just rejoice in the fact that our great God is in control. As Adrian Rogers said it, and I often repeat it, uh, the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. I can be at peace because I know my Jesus has a situation well in hand. But if we have to work at that because a lot of things will disturb our peace if we'll let it. We'll have to work to keep ourselves unspotted from the world and to be blameless. All of these things will require diligence, hard work, on our part you can fall into dirty but you don't fall into clean we don't drift into this kind of life it takes effort and discipline and toil why would we want it well because this world and this life is not all there is there is another world and another life to come and since this is true, since we are these looking for kind of people, we are looking for uh, this world to be replaced by another world. Since we are looking for these things, then be diligent to be at peace because God's got this all worked out. And to be unspotted and to be blameless before the world. Be diligent so we'll be prepared for the life and the world that's to come. So we're looking for people. We're diligent people. Then we are a considering people. Verse 15, consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. This is a consideration, something then that we think carefully about, something that we ponder. Interestingly, the word itself means to command, to command or to lead. 
with the sense that we are following something. What this means is, is that this is something that we give concentrated attention to because it's important. We consider. And then this dominates our thinking. It controls our thinking. I want to remind you tonight that when we understand that Jesus Christ is coming again, that changes the way we think. When we understand that this world is passing away and a new world is coming, then that changes our outlook on life and living. It is a dominant thought. I would almost say it is the most dominating thought. I mean, what else is there? Certainly there is the truth of our salvation. Certainly there is the truth, but all of it is intertwined. Remember, the Jesus that you and I believe in is the coming again Jesus. The Jesus we're going to stand before. The Jesus we're going to give an account to. The Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. This is a dominating thought. Controlling thought. And what he wants us to think then is about the long suffering of our God. You see, that really is what had prompted this whole discussion on Simon Peter's part because people were looking at how long it had been. And and goodness, it had only been a few decades. Peter was looking at how long it had been and, and saying that people were looking at that and saying, you know, where's the promise of his coming? Well, it's been 40 years. My dad told me about this when I was just a kid. It's been a lot longer than that now. But already then, people were giving up. They didn't understand that the long-suffering of God is salvation. You consider this. Let it be a a dominant part of your thinking. The long-suffering of our God is salvation. Jesus could have come back almost right away, I guess. He went up. I mean, that's what the apostles were thinking. There they stand, Mount of Olives. Is he, is he coming back? <laughs> he said he's coming back. Is it right now? They had no way of knowing. Got an angelic nudge, you know. Jesus had told them, Terry, for 10 days, so they knew at least it ought to be 10 days, but He told them, greater work shall you do than I've done. That was greater in number. So they they knew there was some work to do, but it's hard to get it out of their mind. When is Jesus going to come? Personally, I'm glad Jesus didn't come in the first century. (laughs) We wouldn't be here if he had. What did Simon Peter say? The long-suffering of our God is salvation. Now, he says, you think about this. Give this some thought. I want to spend just a moment or two tonight letting you give some thought to this. You do realize, of course, that the population of the world today is far, far greater than it has ever, ever been. We passed a milestone. Was it 7 billion a few weeks ago or was it 8 billion? I can't remember now. Seven at least. Passed another billion milestone. You know, it was 1,800 and something before there was one billion people on the planet. That happened in the 1,800s. 
So from the creation of the world into the 1800s, it took that long to get a billion people on this planet. And now what's it done? The long-suffering of our God is salvation. With this explosion in population, you think about what else has happened. Knowledge and the ability to communicate has exploded. Language barriers have been broken down by the Internet. I can preach today and somebody in Russia or whatever right now could be tuning us in anywhere on this planet and listening to us. Maybe a minute or two behind. I don't know. I don't know how fast it is. Just stop and think. Do you think all this has happened by accident? Or do you think it's happened by divine design? That God has brought these things together with the population exploding as it has. With knowledge increasing as it has. With technology increasing at the rate that it has. The long suffering of our God is salvation. Even if the percentages overall of people responding to the gospel are going down. The actual numbers themselves are probably going up. Just because of the sheer numbers of humanity. Revival's going on in Africa. Revival's still going on in South Korea. There's places all over this planet where people are getting unprecedented access to the gospel. Simon Peter said it long ago. You think about it. The long suffering of our God is salvation. But even if we take away that global perspective, which is hard for us to even get our mind wrapped around, let's uh, bring it home a little bit more closely. The long-suffering of our God means that you've had a chance to live. For most of us, it means that we've had a chance to marry, to have children, and now to raise them up, to know Jesus Christ, to have every opportunity to be saved. And to disciple them, to make them, turn them into followers of Jesus Christ. Nothing we can do for our kids is more important than leading them to Christ and teaching them to be a follower of Jesus. God blesses us then with an overwhelming opportunity. The long suffering of our God is salvation. So we are a considering people. We're a diligent people. We're a looking for people. What kind of people should we be? Lastly, we're a cautious people. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware. Beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. It's hard to maintain diligence when everybody else is slacking off. It's hard to stay steadfast in our faith when others are giving up on it completely. In some ways, it's never been easier to be led away by the error of the wicked than it is today. And so in response to all that, Simon Peter says, be alert. Since you know what's going on and what's happening, be alert. Grow in grace. Because we're going to need the grace of God a lot. And we do.
and grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. I've been studying about Jesus since before I was able to read. I don't remember all that my mother and grandmother, that my dad ever read to me, but I do remember, I do have some distant memories of sitting there and watching them page through that, turn through that Reader's Digest version of the Bible that had all the pictures in it. And they were all messed up. I understand all that, but still for a little child, it was pretty special. I have memories of being read to, sitting there. I'm not talking about toddler memories, but it was before I could read. So I've been studying about Jesus for a long, long time now. And I've got a simple testimony for you tonight. I've got a lot to learn about Jesus. I've, I've not plumbed the depths of what there is to learn. We've only got one lifetime. And you know, John told us that if he'd written down everything there was to know about Jesus, he said the world itself couldn't contain all the books. There's more. And that's why I don't hesitate to tell you about Jesus and his love. To tell you the old, old story. To preach those truths again and again, though you've heard them. Because there's always more in them to learn. The old hymn writer in another hymn probably said it best. More about Jesus would I know. More of his grace to others show. More about Jesus would I know. Well, John Newton concluded his hymn by saying that he will be forever mine. That God who calls us here below will be forever mine. And that's a good place to wrap up on tonight. A quick reminder that our response to God goes on here below. So many people are thinking that when they get to heaven, you know, somebody's going to meet them at the gate and decide whether they're going to get in or not. And that they can't possibly know whether they're fit for heaven until that happens. But I'm here to tell you tonight that if you wait till then, it is too late. God calls us below, here below. That's where the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. That's where our decision is made. That's why the Bible says today is a day of salvation and now is the time of salvation. Many, many preachers have said it through all the years and it's still true. As death finds us, eternity claims us. If death finds you as a believer in Christ, then you go out just like John Newton said. He'll be forever yours. But if death finds you as an unbeliever, person who's never trusted in Jesus Christ, then you go out into eternal condemnation. God calls us here below. And maybe even as we see, sit here in this service tonight, maybe God is calling you. Maybe someone at home, God is calling you. Oh, it's time for you to answer. How do you do that? The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The Bible says, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on his name. 
The Bible says that if I believe with thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto the righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the Lord shall be saved. Have you believed that Jesus Christ died for your sins? Have you called on him to ask him to be your Savior? If not, then do it now. Let's stand together, please.